Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the city's vast collection of murals. Recently, a decades-old mural memorializing youth loss of violence was destroyed by a developer and was met with outrage. Once you put that up, it's a problem when you try to take it down. It's a big problem. Art claps back for Mural Arts Month. We can't stand in the way of economic development, and we wouldn't do that. But there are sort of common-sense solutions to this. There's so many different building blocks to what makes a neighborhood great. We dig into how to promote progress while maintaining Philadelphia's vast collection of public art. Philadelphia is a leader when it comes to protecting immigrant communities. We can't fight crime if we don't have the cooperation of our population. My sit-down with Mayor Jim Kinney as we count down for the Philadelphia International Unity Cup. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is development versus public art. Philadelphia is home to more than 4,000 murals. Did you know that? The process began in the 1980s when former Mayor Wilson Good Sr. created the Anti-Graffiti Network to combat blight and to give youth a positive place to channel energy. Well, fast forward... And the murals are a reflection of the city's pains, triumphs, and culture. So it was no surprise that community outrage was a response recently when a developer mistakenly destroyed a decades-old mural in South Philadelphia that memorialized youth lost to violence. The developer promised to replace it, but it left the question, how does the city progress without tearing the artistic fabric that makes Philly, Philly? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Jane Golden. She's executive director of Mural Arts Philadelphia, an organization that has united artists and communities to create art that transform public spaces and lives. We also have Andrew Goodman. He's director of community engagement at the new Kensington Community Development Corporation, a nonprofit working to revitalize the Kensington, Fishtown, and Port Richmond neighborhoods. And finally, we have Claudia smith Sherrod. She's a community activist and former leader of South Philadelphia Homes. She's also a resident of Point Breeze. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Jane, I want to start with you because Mural Arts, originally the anti-graffiti network, was created to solve a problem. And it did such a good job that now we're seeing a huge uptick in development for a variety of reasons, of course. Could you explain the origins a bit of, of Mural Arts? Sure. I I give so much credit to Wilson Good and Tim Spencer, who created the Anti-Graffiti Network. I would not be here without the experience at Anti-Graffiti. And so the Anti-Graffiti was was formed to reduce graffiti in the city. And Wilson Good was interested in the fact that many of the kids liked Mm. and were interested in art. So my task was to rechannel the, quote, negative energy of graffiti writers and direct them towards something positive. I think that was actually in my job description. And I had experience as a muralist and doing public artwork. And so I thought, well, we would run programs, but maybe young people would also like painting murals. And it just took off. And so young people saw art as a lifeline. And we started working in Strawberry Mansion, Mantua, Nora Square first. There were our first three areas. And 
first people were skeptical and like, what we don't why do we need art? We want housing, we wouldn't want jobs. And then when we said to people, well, what would you like? This isn't really about our vision. People were like, oh, well, I want, you know, Malcolm X or Dr. King or kids or landscapes. And suddenly, collaboratively, public art yeah. was being created that was really co-owned between the artist and the community. And now there are thousands. Well over 4,000 works of public art that grace the sides of buildings in our city. Yeah. And I know, Miss Claudia, you have seen the transformational work of public art firsthand at Point Breeze with the murals. Explain what you've seen over the years. Well, over the years, I've been affiliated with the arts programs through not only my organization, where I was the executive director there for 30 years, but also through the many playgrounds, recreation centers mm-hmm. like Shoe Playground, Smith Playground there. I've always uh, joined with the community and to find out how can we clear up these corners. You and know, when you say corners, corners was what? When you have a lot of people hanging on the corners and not really doing anything and getting into trouble. Mm. I'm talking about young people as well as older, older people. Yeah. And so what we came up with, let's find a out for them mm-hmm. and find something creative and sustainable for them. And art was a very challenging and positive out for the young people. Matter of fact, the older people, they didn't necessarily go in for the art, but when we put art on the walls, on the raw walls that were bare, and ugly, and the weeds that were climbing up in the areas. It created an environment of hope. Mm. So the art transformed the community and created hope. Yes. And, uh, Andrew, you too have seen this transform Fishtown in the, in the communities that you work in. Absolutely. Yeah, so for NKCDC, art has been a crucial kind of organizing mechanism and catalyst for our communities, um, especially Kensington has this kind of great kind of maker history and so kind of that creative energy is you know the art uh, kind of artistic energy ties in that as well and so it was a really crucial organizing mechanism for a neighborhood plan that we worked on with the Fishtown and East Kensington communities in the early 2000s around thinking about Frankfurt Avenue as an arts corridor and then all the different kind of complementary uses and how that could kind of help change perceptions maybe from a negative to a positive. The example, though, Jane, in South Philadelphia, the anti-violence mural, it was beloved. It was mistakenly damaged, caused by a developer. When does art and development kind of clash? That's exactly when art and development clash. And I think it clashes when developers build in front of a mural or tear a mural down or work a public art of any kind without notifying the community. I think that people feel blindsided and yeah. surprised. I mean, look, we would we can't stand in the way of economic development and we wouldn't do that. But there are sort of common sense solutions to this where everybody is respected. And I think respect and transparency and clarity are key sort of issues here that we need to just put on the table quite honestly. I mean, had the developer contacted us, contacted the community, we could have made a plan. We're going to recreate the mural somewhere else. Mural Arts is here totally committed to communities all over the city, ready to fly into action. Another thing is I think that we need to understand and be really proud of the fact that the murals, the public art pieces, the frescoes, mosaics, stained glass, whatever it is, these are cultural civic icons in our city. Mm -hmm. They are assets. We're known internationally as the city of murals. People come from all over. And we're one of the few cities where truly the art is the autobiography of Philadelphia. This is not work that's just created by some out-of-town artists that swoop in, 
fly away and you never see them again. When you drive around the city from one end to the other, you're going to see works of art that truly represent people's lives. And there's there's real beauty in that. And yeah. I think we need to respect it and lift our heads up and say, wow, this this really distinguishes us. And how do we protect this moving and how forward? Do we, and I mean, and Claudia, you kind of been in the middle. How do you kind of mediate the, this sort of issue? I know the community doesn't love every mural the way they love this one. You have to be transparent. If you let people know mm-hmm. that you want to do some development and that mural was not a permanent statue there or fixture for that particular area, then you don't have a problem. You may have some people who get upset, but if you put a mural there that's supposed to be there forever, then you're going to have problems. Yeah. Because the murals really help clear up a lot of the light, the aggravation people get from walking home at night because there's no light. There's no sustainable transparency through the people working together to achieve goals and objectives that could, you know, in conversation. Yeah. You can't do that when you have a a blighted area. Andrew, you guys are clearing up the area, making change. At the end of the day, how do you deal with people? You buy this piece of property. Yeah, there's a mural on the side, but, I mean, you didn't put it up there. You want to be able to do what you want to do. So how do you deal with folks? Just to clarify, we're a nonprofit developer. So I think, Mm -hmm. you know, our kind of public interest mission maybe puts us in a little bit Mm -hmm. of a different place because no matter what, with any sort of development that we work on, we're going to do more than what's legislatively required of us. And since we've been in the same neighborhood since 1985. You understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we understand that there's value. There's so many different building blocks to what makes a neighborhood great and livable and walkable and all these different things. And we think about what we cherish most about our neighborhoods. Um, There's so many pieces that can't be... um, kind of legislated through the development process, but we still need to find a way to preserve any way we can. How do you talk to these folks, someone moving in the community and say, look, they like, look, man, I want to do whatever I want to do with that East Wall. I don't understand why I have to, you know, to, to preserve this thing. Some days are better than others. I'll tell you that <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's part of kind of being welcoming and offering our services and support in any way we can and helping to be that kind of introduction to the community for someone who might be new and so so that we don't always have to be the voice we can connect them to the residents or the existing businesses that can be kind of a more direct representation for what the community wants and perhaps expects of new developers in the neighborhood yeah because I, I will say philadelphians are very vocal about things um they love and i mean like you know i mean these murals made uh philadelphia better and more beautiful one wall at a time. Um, and it's a cultural thing. Um, and they're actually part of the, the landscape of the city. Yeah, we have a waiting list of like 2,000 people who want work. I mean, I think we're in a city where people are clamoring for art. How great is that? Like, there's no way we could possibly keep up with the demand. So we work different ways now. Sometimes we're more temporary. Sometimes it's more permanent. Sometimes we work not just with painters, but photographers or video artists, sometimes mm-hmm. dancers. They're multidisciplinary projects. We bring in poets. Sometimes it's more abstract. Sometimes they're small and quick. Sometimes they're bigger and more narrative. I think we have to be very facile and flexible. And oftentimes the work that we're doing comes out of our programmatic work, our restorative justice or behavioral health work or our art education work. And those projects are just so deep and meaningful and profound too. So it's like we just – I feel like it's really important for us to never stop being creative and thoughtful and think how 
how many ways can we impact the city? We should never stand still because we have huge responsibility. People mm-hmm. from outside of the city, meaning from the counties, they're moving here. And they may not necessarily know the attachment. And like Andrew said, he's like introducing, look, y'all need to know what the community wants. Y'all are part of this fabric. And, and it's a different vibration, I think. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like we have a Keith Herring mural in South Philadelphia, 22nd and Ellsworth. And when the people bought the house, we were sort of so scared. And the truth and what happened is they end up saying, oh, my God, we moved into a house. There is a Keith Herring mural. How did it get here? And it was deteriorating. And what they did is they called the Keith Herring Foundation. They said, we're so sad. We bought this house. We're from New York. The mural's deteriorating. They said, well, lucky you, because the mural arts program is in Philadelphia, (laughs) and we'll make a grant to them to fix up your mural. And so they all called us, and we're like, what? Because here we were. We were just nervous that they wouldn't know anything and just white out the mural. Now today it's going to live on for the next 30 years. So that's a wonderful example of folks who want that. (laughs) And, I mean, but are there there examples, Claudia, of where the community was like, well— or, or is it, for mo- the most part, once a piece of art is there, the community wants it there? We have some of the people who cry about everything. But uh, Mamie Nichols was on the side mm. of uh, Mamie Love Nichols' uh, house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's what they call it, Mamie Nichols' house. Mm-hmm. And they said they were going to put it back, but they never did. And I think that was one that should have stayed there because if you're going to name the building in her name, you could at least put her picture on the side of the building where it was once. They had to rebuild that building. There, there was another one on the corner of uh, Point Breeze and Dickinson. It was a beautiful mural, but it had no sustainable reasons and rhymes other than to make it beauty, beautiful in that corner. And it did its job. But now they are building a building there. But in most cases, when we have a issue with a mural, we have a meeting, a community meeting. And mm. We discuss it. And we look at, was it supposed to be here permanently? Or would you want it to be here permanently? Because most homeowners don't have the opportunity to say yay or nay. How does it enhance property value? Because, I mean, there's a real-world business um, argument that could be said that this art actually makes your house better, your your neighborhood better, and it, it, it actually makes sense to keep it in place. That's why we all choose to live in active, dense, vibrant places like Philadelphia um, because of these kind of additional moments of beauty or engaging with your neighbors or whatever it might be. And arts and culture is one of those rare kind of great equalizers amongst us all. Um, And so it is crucial in that way. And we've seen it time and time again. Um, But for whatever reason, it's still a case we need to keep making time and time again. Are there ever cases where you just cannot convince them? Because even in the case of the anti-violence mural, when the developer heard about it and the uproar that happened, they promised to fix it. And usually it's some kind of a agreement made because people do not want Philly residents to be too upset. <laughs> Especially for a mural like that one that was such a it was a point of healing and acknowledging yes. so much loss that a particular neighborhood encountered. So the the symbolism of a developer taking that down it speaks mm-hmm. to kind of decades of difficult challenges that, that neighborhood has, has has had to go through. From our perspective, we haven't had a whole lot of instances in our area that I can think of where developers took down kind of murals immediately. We always look for ways to relocate and kind of that. And again, that's part of our role of trying to kind of intercept those before they take place. And that's what a lot of CDCs do. They kind of act as that that media. And so Mm -hmm. is there a solution, though? I mean, because like like this, this the house you mentioned, they didn't know who to call. 
And a lot of times you just see this piece yeah, of art up there. Bought the house right. and you then had a mural on it. And you're like, it's on a mural here. What do I do with this thing? You know, right, and, right. and who do I call if it's if it's falling down? I would love to see some kind of amendment through city council where developers, if they are building in front of or tearing down a work of art, that they would go to a database and they would have to check and see whose mural it is. A lot of times it's our mural. And if it's not, we can figure out whose mural it is. It could be, it doesn't have to be a big cumbersome system. And then we can, you know, at least out of respect, notify the community and just say, right. look, this is going to happen. What do you think? Do you, does everybody want to keep the mural or right. do you want us to relocate it? Or is it fine if it goes to mural heaven? I mean, sometimes murals, I think that you said that very well. Sometimes they do what they're supposed to do. Sometimes they should live on. Sometimes right. it's good to have new work all the time. I like what Andrew said about that's what makes Philadelphia so stimulating and wonderful. So I think that's one way. Another way is we do partner with some developers mm. and are creating new works of art. I mean, we're trying to create a um, sort of a new uh, funding streams for young artists to, you know, to test their chops, to do small works of art and then sort of build up their, you know, sort of their reputation. And then they can either become lead artists, muralists, teaching artists, or go on to do their own commission. We've been a platform for, I think, close to 20,000 artists over the many years we've been in existence. And that's like something that's really fantastic, that this is a city that really supports the arts. How do we and, and communities keep track of the, their own murals and, and pieces of art that they actually care about and, and, and differentiate from the ones that they may not have such an attachment to. I think it's a theme for a mural being put up on the wall. It's not just a painting, a piece of art. Years ago when they started, they just made beautiful pictures. But I think now they have a theme for and reason for why they are putting the art up. And once you put that up, it's a problem when you try to take it down. It's a big problem. But most uh, developers don't have the problems with murals on their walls. There's only some of, some of them. And yeah. once a family come in and they see a mural on the side of their wall, I don't think they're so fast to want to take it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, if anything, they say, mm, I'm special because not too many people have art on the side of their, their buildings. And they just want it to be up, kept up and, and looking that, nice. That's right, exactly. Yeah, I think I agree with uh, having an archive of who did what and when and why. I think the why is really in key because that way if you go to a community meeting and people are fighting to keep it or not to keep it, you could have some basis for your action. And so, Andrew, do you think this would be more of a burden on new people who are coming in? Do you think it would slow progress at all? No, no, I don't, I don't think it would at all. And I think it's just one example of these kind of different um, components social institutions, community institutions, whatever that, whatever they might be that are crucial to sustaining neighborhoods and making sure that that history is kind of carried over and continues to be part of the neighborhood. So I think it's just one example of a way that that sort of inventory could be incorporated into the development process so that developers are, you know, more and probably feel more themselves as part of the community as opposed to purely a newcomer. Like Jane mentioned, I mean, this archive, I mean, do you think that, uh, you know, property owners would use that and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm moving into this neighborhood. This is something I need to explore. It's another way to learn more context yeah. about the community they're investing in, whether it's their specific property or not. Because this is flashlight, we do have to wrap this up. Can Philadelphia change and develop and bring in more folks, quote, outsiders, while keeping the same culture and flavor that art 
has brought us and how do we do that? Like other big global cities, Philadelphia has to continually continually learn how to multitask. I think we can. I think we can work on lots of fronts at the same time. I think that we're doing it, but I think we have to go back to remembering why we all love this city. And I'm going to posit that it has to do with the neighborhoods and the communities. And if you look at the works of art in the city as truly the autobiography of Philadelphia, then we're going to respect it. We're going to preserve it. We're going to think about how we can grow this collection in a way that it continues to reflect the fabric of our city. Ms. Claudia? Our community has grown and has developed through the arts. The art is very, very creative to the mind. It, it, it makes you explore, makes your heart beat with joy. I've been in, in my neighborhood a very long time, and the arts has really created a positive effect. Yeah. Last word to you, Andrew. I mean, how do we bring it all together? Conversations like these and going even broader, inviting developers to the table, making sure that there's a process so that we're working on all these things together early. Obviously, time is money, um, but at the same time, it I think it can happen, and it has to happen now because the market is up, and that's good. So it's on us to figure out how we grow sustainably and equitably as a city to make sure that what we all love about Philadelphia continues to grow. Thank you to Jane Golden. Thank you to uh, Claudia Smith-Sherrod. And thank you to Andrew Goodman for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank Thank you. you very much. Next up, the countdown is on for the third annual Philadelphia International Unity Cup. This is all about the changing face of America. The progress of this World Cup-style tournament and its impact on the city's immigrant population. We'll be right back. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Terry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is conflict between communities. Well, the third annual Philadelphia International Unity Cup is designed to bring folks together. The brainchild of Mayor Jim Kenney, the city... The citywide World Cup South Soccer event has grown from 36 teams to 52 since its inception. But much of this success comes from Mayor Kenny's commitment to the city's diverse immigrant population. And here with us to discuss the effort is the Honorable Jim Kenny. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. This has been a big year for the new Unity Cup. There's been lots of changes. How do you view the tournament now that it's not an infant anymore? I really do believe that it's accomplishing the goal that we set out to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, with all the various diverse groups of people coming to the city yeah. uh, through immigration, uh, we were looking for something that would bring unity to the community so that people can have something in common. We recognize that American kind of born sports that doesn't always translate. I mean, baseball certainly is more international than, than U.S. football. Ice hockey, basketball is international. But we were looking for something that was truly international and could be understood by everyone in the world, and that's soccer. And we wanted to bring together all the various groups of ethnic folks who have come to the city uh, and give them something in common to compete, a good nature competition, and to actually win something. And the other the other issue for me is, is that they've all got a chance to talk to each other. They really didn't know each other. I mean, they this one country group didn't know the other country group, and now they, they meet together, they play friendlies together, uh, they, they interact about, about city services, and they become an own, your own constituent group through through the sport. Uh, and it's been very, very well received. It's very competitive. I remember the first year at Ivory Coast and um, and Liberia were playing in the finals mm-hmm. and was getting a little chippy down there on the on the turf. And I had to go down and like say, fellas, if we wind up in a fight here in the Unity Cup, I'm probably going to be the last Unity <laughs> Cup, so could you please? And they, they 
they got it. They were competing hard and tough. The game was one nothing, but it turned out fine. Yeah, and our, a lot of that has kind of smoothed out. People oh, yeah. know it's it's bragging rights, but it's definitely very professional and well put together. Yeah. And people have complimented the city on the organization of this and Bill Salvatore's work. Yeah. And whole Bill Salvatore does a rec. great job. Yeah. All of our Parks and Rec people do a great job. And we're actually moving this year down to Talon yes. uh, Field where the union plays. I mean, the Phillies and the, and the Eagles were very, very gracious in, in the first two years that we had the, the event. The Phillies, I think, last year were getting new turf on the ground, on the, on the field. So we had had to go to Lincoln Financial. They were very, very accommodating and helpful. But this, they're both big facilities, both mm-hmm. big arenas. And we thought that, uh, and, and the union uh, offered to give it to us for free. So it's a little bit of a trip, but it's still in the region. And it is a soccer field. So it's, and it's got the capacity to make it look a little more crowded. Yeah. And it's a little bit earlier, too. It's in October. Yeah. Weather probably yep. be a little bit better. It was a little chilly yep. uh, last year. And Bill Salvatore, I spoke to him um, a couple weeks ago. He said that there's been a big uptick in the number of people attending games. How yeah. does that, your reaction? To that. Yeah. And again, it's, it's, it's the goal of yeah. bringing people together, people who have um, some things in common and some things not in common, uh, can see each other's uh, humanity and understand each other's needs and try to help each other. And um, I just think it's it's been a great opportunity. It's very positive. Everyone, you know, enjoys the the uh, the, the, the pool play and the knockout rounds. Mm-hmm. And then now we're down to the almost the finals now. Yeah, and one of the things you mentioned to me was that a city like Boston, mm-hmm. very similar to Philadelphia yep. and its ethnic, you know, not mm-hmm. necessarily ethnic makeup, but the diversity, yep. a lot of immigrant communities, they're looking at this as well, launching yep. their own time. I think Pittsburgh reached out to us also, and they want to try to do something in, in Boston. Um, and um, I think New York was even actually talking about it. They would have probably 100 and, 152 teams oh my up goodness. there. I went to a Dominican parade one time in New York on 6th Avenue. Oh my God, I have never seen anything like it. It was four or five deep and it was like going on for miles and miles. So it's, it's I think, I, that's why I love immigration. That's why I'm really sad that, you know, this conversation about immigration mm-hmm. and immigrants has gotten to where it's at. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, race and, and the color of the people's skin, which is sad. I mean, if, uh, you know, when the president say, says we need more people from Norway, uh, I think that's pretty clear yeah. what he's talking about. But Norwegians don't want to come here because they have good education and health care. They stay right where they are. Yeah. Um, but but we've had an influx of Africans and Central Americans, South Americans, uh, Southeast Asians, uh, Eastern Europeans. Uh, and I think that's wonderful as a, as a person of Irish-American descent uh, who yeah. were not very welcome here when we came. We were not welcomed when we came here. Our churches were burned down, two of them in Philadelphia. Um, you know, uh, no Irish need apply. I think that people who are hyphenated Americans, uh, Italian Americans, Irish Americans, Polish Americans, Jewish Americans need to understand that all of us have had this kind of had this kind of experience when we came here, and and to force other people to go through that negative experience, I think is sad and shameful. Yeah, and it's almost like your the timing of the Unity mm-hmm. Cup was perfect because it started before this sort of crackdown on mm-hmm. immigration right. and has increased because of it. And I want to talk about you know Philadelphia as a sanctuary city. Mm-hmm. That choice has been under fire yeah. uh, for the last couple. H- here's years. the issue. Here's the real issue. You need a court. You need a warrant to hold someone against their mm-hmm. will. And all the federal government has to do is go to a federal magistrate or a federal district judge and get a warrant. We've mm-hmm. turned over about six people last year based on the warrant. The problem that we have is that if a person gets arrested for DUI or retail theft or, or something and a judge issues an order to release that person and ICE gives us a detainer request, which is a civil request, not a criminal request, they're asking us to violate the judge's order in order to hold that person an extra couple of days, which is against the Constitution. The, the federal judge agreed with us is in his opinion he said go get a warrant i mean they're willing to turn people over if you really want them by getting a judicial warrant signed by a judge 
and they refuse to do it. So this is not like we're opening up the jails and letting people out. The problem with ICE has been is, is that they're really under no supervision. The FBI, the Philadelphia Police, the state police will arrest someone. Yeah. They have to Mirandize them, have to read them their rights. Mm-hmm. They have to take them before a judge. They have to charge the person. They get bail or they don't get bail. There's a process. ICE has been taking people from their homes or taking people from their cars and holding them for hours on end and interrogating them about other people that they want to turn o- they, they want that person to turn over. That's not the way the criminal justice system works. Yeah. But they have, this is this is a politicized discussion and conversation. And I think that Trump and Sessions and some of the, you know, yeah. Steve Miller and those guys, they want this controversy because they want to gin up their base. They want their base to be angry. And mm-hmm. what their base is angry about is the country's changing. It always changes. I mean, yeah. it's becoming more brown and black. It's fine. It's not, you know, it's they're still Americans. And I think that that's... That's where we lose it. And I think that they want to hold on to white European male domination of this culture. And eventually it's going to change anyway. So just relax, yeah. fellas. And, and the Trump administration has actually, you know, they, they threatened mm-hmm. Philadelphia. And actually the, the city has been involved in multiple lawsuits mm-hmm. against the Trump administration. Right. Have you taken any flack for that position? Because no. the, the DOJ has said that, you know, we're, we're somehow the city is harboring criminals or doing some, you know, they've used very ominous language here. Uh, the best amount of crime in our country and in our city is not done by immigrants. It's not committed by immigrants. Mm-hmm. Certainly there's, a, I'm sure, a portion of the immigrant population that are that are crime oriented towards committing crimes. But for the most part, our crime is is, is home homegrown. They pick these cases and highlight them in order to scare people. Sadly, we lose a couple of kids a weekend. I mean, do you care about the homeland security of, of, of native-born Americans? Why aren't you interdicting uh, heroin and guns as opposed to chasing down immigrants who only uh, fault is that they don't have appropriate documents. And I want to talk about this PARS database um, yep. because uh, Philadelphia ended its relationship yep. where um, it would allow ICE to use the PARS right. database. Explain that decision and, and has there been any impact since that the, happened? The, the over problem the is is that we redacted status. So mm-hmm. on the PARS information, status is, is blacked out. But they went the country of origin. Uh, sometimes people will offer their country of origin. They, so they would select all those folks in the database uh, whose country of origin mm-hmm. was either Mexico, Central America, or some other place that they don't want people to come from. And they would go to the house. They would go to the business. They would pick the people up in the street and, and use the country of origin as a way to profile uh, individuals, which is wrong. Yeah. And again, you, you're not giving them Miranda rights. You're not bringing them before a judge. You're not having char- issuing charges against them. You're simply holding them and you're doing a fishing expedition based on the information that we provide you. Now, Ironically, there are two or three other databases that they have access to that will give them the same information. This, again, is another political argument they're making that, you know, it's a lawless city and they're not abiding by federal law. Well, federal law, federal constitutional law says that you need a warrant to hold someone against their will. And that's what we're basing on. Now, if, if, if the judge had indicated that we were wrong and it ruled against us, yeah. we would comply. Uh, we're unlike the president who questions the integrity and, and, and mind of, of judges all over the place, uh, you know, criticizing judges, you know, because, he, because a judge is a Mexican, of Mexican descent. He can't be a good judge. I mean, all the stuff that he throws out there. If a federal judge, if that federal judge had ordered us or his opinion indicated we needed to cooperate with them, we would have. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't. So we're on solid ground. And the, the contract expired uh, with, with, uh, with ICE and PARS. And we decided not to renew it because people – here's the problem. If P- 
if, if our immigrant population believes that the Philadelphia Police Department is an arm of ICE and Homeland Security uh, and doing their work for them, they will, they will clam up. They will go underground. They won't report crime. They won't be witnesses. They won't, mm-hmm. They'll just get lost. And yeah. we can't fight crime if we're not, we don't have the cooperation of our population, whether they're, whether they're homegrown or whether they're foreign-born. If people are afraid of, the, of our police, yeah. crime will be a problem. We're at a 40-year low in crime right now. People are very cooperative with, with our police department. Uh, we have an up, uh, increase in shooting, sadly, and, and a slight uptick in homicides. But all the other part one crime is down to 40 year low and we can do that we can do that because community policing means the community trusts the police yeah uh, and if they don't if they think they're going to turn them over to the federal authorities they'll never call 911 yeah and i want to talk about that because um that sort of kind of ties back into the unity cup because people trust the city i've talked to a lot of folks they were nervous last year when we were doing this i you know because of uh whatever their statuses are but that's not the concern here it's about unity and and bringing neighborhoods together i mean look uh do you think that anyone would leave their country unless they really were forced to do so by starvation or oppression or religious persecution or whatever they're coming here because they're they have nowhere else to go yeah and to, to all of a sudden to say, I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to close this country off, I think is backward and, and stupid. And uh, we're a global – we're in a global world and yeah. we need to communicate with each other. We can't ban Muslims. That's a crazy – it's like banning Catholics. I mean yeah. it's about good works and treating people. It's the same thing. It's a golden rule. Treat people like you want to be treated. Yeah. And that's all we're asking people to do. And if the federal government just get out of our way and leave us alone, we'll be fine. They don't do anything for us anyway, really. Yeah. I mean and they take our taxes. And there's been this whole clampdown in cities – uh, to sort of do what they can on, on a municipal level. But I want to ask you about one more thing because I actually came to a press conference you did with all the lawyers in the city mm-hmm. talking about the public charge doctrine. Right. Immigrants had to prove that they would not be uh, reliant on public benefits if they came to this country. And there had been a strict, there had been talks about changing this rule, making it more restrictive and broadening it so fewer people could slip through. And Philadelphia was on the forefront of trying to rewrite this rule, but the what came out was proposed is still tough. The vast majority of people in public assistance are American-born. Mm-hmm. They are generally um, single women with children or people who are disabled. Um, you know, the, 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 the myth of the, of the welfare queen and the Cadillac, well, that's all just bogus. It's never been true. It was just done by ignorant people to make to, to, to identify people in a certain way. So if you're a single mom and you get WIC or you get food stamps to feed your kids, really, are we that petty? That yeah, we would but deny? people are afraid that immigrants hear about this public charge, the new rule under the Trump administration, and they won't ask for help and that kids are going to go hungry. And I guess that, that – I guess Donald Trump – believes that that's his Christian values is to allow children to go hungry. I, I, I disagree with him vehemently. I disagree with the people around him. This is all about the changing yeah. face of America. And white European descendants are annoyed that people are getting blacker and browner. Mm-hmm. And that's tough because it's going to happen anyway. So let's all work together and treat each other like human beings and have a great country instead yeah. of trying to exclude people. You know, he, he wants $25 billion for a wall. You know what I could do with $25 billion in education? I mean, he never talks about funding education. We're talking about funding walls. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. 
and yeah. and you just have to hope you know hopefully the midterms will will get back to Congress maybe get back to Senate and hopefully in 2020 we send him packing getting back to the Unity Cup the championship game is next week yep. what would make it a success for you beautiful weather would be wonderful <laughs> that would be nice no rain uh, a low a low scoring tight game with a lot of exciting plays and uh, everybody just enjoying each other and enjoying their humanity together. And I think that's what Philadelphia is all about. And the West Africans have been winning the last couple of years. They're but this tough. year we've seen a lot of teams yeah. from Central America coming back. Well, they got they got serious and started hiring some <laughs> professional coaches and stuff. Um, but the Africans were very good because of the heat. They held up well. Some of the country, European countries they played were the, the guys were like at the end, they were falling down. And the Liberians and the Ivory Coast people were like just running up and down the field still at the end of the game so yeah yeah. what would make this tournament a success long term it becomes an ongoing annual thing Mm-hmm. Uh, that we on the trophy that we have, we have a cup like the Stanley Cup have a couple layers with all the you know, all the teams that that won because we put a new plaque on uh, every year as the who won. So hopefully we can build that trophy up, uh, and um, just that people who are native born Americans um, can understand that the promise of America is go- is for everybody, not just for them. Any dream of having a national unity cup? That'd be cool. That, yeah, that, all the cities come together and mano y mano. That would be cool. I want to do that with boxing too. I want to. I want a <laughs> traveling boxing team from from Philadelphia. I would love to see a tournament where we get down to the in each weight class, get a champion for the city, and then take that team on the road to New York and to Pittsburgh and to Washington D.C. and and do that. So, well, look, Mayor Jim Kenney, thank you so much for My being question. on Flashpoint. I've seen your dreams come true from Octavius V. Yeah. Cato to yeah. the Philadelphia International Unity yeah. Cup and beyond. So, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Next up, they are working to get to zero. With the advances in prevention of HIV, we could actually end this epidemic. The AIDS Fund wants the public to join them, counting down to one of this year's largest efforts. But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the Tweets with Flashpoint associate producer Brianna Bonds. Hey, Brianna. Hey, Cherry. So, like we do, we're taking it to the tweets, getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. So, we had two polls again this week, Cherry. First, we asked, do you think Bill Cosby is too old to be in prison for three to ten years? The options were, yes, home arrest, no, he committed a crime, somewhat, and I don't know. So, the top answer, Cherry, was with 74%, no, he committed a crime. Wow. Most people said time to go to jail. The cops behind bars. <laughs> you know, and only 16 percent said yes. Home arrest. I think that says a lot about our current climate right now. You do the crime, <laughs> you do the time. And he was convicted. Yes. And this is the Me Too era. That's very true. That's Sorry, Cos. <laughs> so next we have, was the Brett Kavanaugh FBI investigation sufficient enough for the Senate Judiciary Committee to move on to the final confirmation vote? So the options were, yes, enough info, no, more interviews, tough to say, and I don't know. Top answer, yes, enough info. Wow. 53%. F40, not too far behind, but still was no more interviews. That could mean a range of things because people could think that it's enough info to either vote for or against him. Yeah, that's very true. We didn't know because a lot of people may say say that his demeanor, everything that they Mm -hmm. heard at that last hearing was enough to say no. But a lot of people feel like he should move forward and it looks like he is moving forward. So Looks like... So that's all for Flashpoint on the tweets. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. Look for the hashtag Flashpoint Poll. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks.
This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. Almost 30,000 people have been recorded as living with HIV in the greater Philadelphia area. Just a snippet of the nearly 1.1 million believed to be infected nationwide. The AIDS Fund has held their annual AIDS Walk Philly event for over three decades, an effort to stomp out HIV and AIDS. The walk brings together family members, friends, and neighbors in the quest for zero stigma, zero new infections, and zero deaths. Here to tell us more is Executive Director Rob Reichert. Welcome to Flashpoint, Rob. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've known you for a long time. I know. This is wonderful. Yes. It's always always great to be back. (laughs) And I've been uh, to the AIDS Walk run several times, and it's always a great event. But tell me why the AIDS Fund does what it does. Well, you know, today we have all of the things we need to get to zero Mm -hmm. with the advances in treatment that have been made, with the advances in prevention of HIV. We could actually end this epidemic with those tools. We just have to have the will to do it. And so we need to continue to walk, to raise awareness, but most importantly, to support our friends, family and neighbors living with HIV. Yeah. And people don't understand, I mean, because folks, folks don't even think about HIV and AIDS anymore. They think right. it's over. It, but people are still getting infected because out of sight, out of mind, so to speak. Right. And so we, you know, have to keep up the fight. We're not done yet. I look forward to that day. Mm-hmm. But we have to make sure that people continue to protect themselves from HIV. And we also need to make sure that those living with HIV are in care and remaining care. And so our focus has become helping people to maintain their health when their financial situation may lead to health difficulties. And so talk about that issue because there's great medications out now. There's even medicines that prevent you from contracting HIV. Exactly. The advances on the medical front have been tremendous. Uh, We don't have a cure. I always like to point that out. People think that, you know, treatment is a cure. It's not a cure. You know, so somebody with HIV at this point would be on these medicines for the rest of their lives. Mm. So we want to obviously prevent the spread of HIV. We now know that the medicines that keep people healthy will also help prevent other people from contracting the virus. Mm -hmm. And so we call this PrEP. People who are at high risk can take one pill a day and virtually eliminate their chances of contracting HIV as long as they're medically compliant. Only a small percentage of those who the CDC believes are at high risk and should be on PrEP Only a small percentage are at this point. So we have a long way to go to get people to know about that. You know, opportunities like the AIDS Walk, where we can come out and draw attention to the issue and let people know about these advances are critical. Yeah. And let's take a second to talk about the AIDS Walk because it's changed. It's now not a 10K. It's a 5K. That happened a few years ago. And you also changed the focal point of what the fundraising effort is. Right. We know that we have the medicines to treat HIV, but... All of the other life circumstances surrounding the individual impact their ability to maintain their health and maintain their treatment regimen. So we are there with small grants when somebody is facing eviction because you can't be healthy if you're living on the streets. When people may have their utilities turned off again without water, heat, electric, you're not going to be able to maintain your health. Or maybe their refrigerator dies and they need a refrigerator to keep the medicines in. These are things that really are life-changing. 80% of the clients receiving grants live below the federal poverty level. And fully half of the clients who receive grants live below 75% of the federal poverty level. So we are talking about very poor individuals living with HIV 
and we're trying to keep them healthy and in care because not only is it the right thing to do to help somebody live a long and healthy life, but it's also going to help prevent the spread of HIV. Mm. Because if somebody is successful in treatment, they will not pass the virus on to anybody else. Yeah, and that's and that's a big thing to get to zero, right? Zero new zero. infections and all that. So where can people write? Because it's a lot of fun. You know, it's for a very mm. serious issue, obviously. And we always recognize... Um, those we've lost to the epidemic. We mm-hmm. start our day with the reading of names to commemorate. You know, the quilt, yeah. And the quilt. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of our day. We want to remember and honor our loved ones we've lost, but we also want to have a good time and celebrate life and celebrate, you know, what we're doing to try to end the epidemic and get to zero. Everybody should get an HIV test annually. It's just I part do. of their routine yeah. medical care. You know, I think a lot of times we look at HIV and say, well, it's those people over there. And it's really everybody's at risk because the risk is based on behavior. It's not who you are. It's what you do. And that's the other thing that leads to stigma because people always think, well, if you contracted HIV, what in the world were you doing? Right. You know, yeah. they didn't do anything different than somebody who has an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah. So where can people sign up? Because it's coming up. Oh, it's coming up. It's Sunday, October 21st. But you can go to register at AIDSWalkPhilly.org or call our office at 215-731-WALK. Wonderful. And Sunday, October 21st, walk kicks off at 830, but we'll be there at seven. A day of memory, a day of fun and a day of health. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rob Reichert. He is the executive director of the AIDS Fund. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me. Mine is Cherry Gregg. Subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content. You can use the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms and search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Henry Ford, founder of Ford Motor Company, once said, coming together is a beginning, keeping together is progress, working together is success. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.